According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 10. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. As far as a harmony of the Gospels is concerned... Matthew is the only account we have of the suicide of Judas Iscariot. It is not recorded in Mark, Luke, or John. And so we have a single gospel account to, uh, to read this. It is not the only account that we have. It's the only gospel account that we have. Luke does record it in uh, the book of Acts. And so there is um, a uh, uh, parallel information to be found in Acts chapter 1 uh, related to his uh, falling and bursting asunder and some of the gruesome details there uh, that are not recorded here. Uh, we'll, we'll look at that at some point. I think under point three we see the uh, additional gory detail that's added to what we have here in Matthew 27. I think hanging is gory enough as it is. If you've ever, maybe you haven't, seen uh, a, a corpse having been hanged, it is not a, uh, a delightful thing. Especially since, in a lot of cases, it's a family member, it's a loved one that finds that finds the uh, the suicide victim. All right. Uh, verse three says, "Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, when Judas the betrayer beheld the condemnation, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests." And the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, so? <laughs> what is that to, to us? What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priests uh, took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. It's blood money. We can't accept this money. We can't receive this money. Never mind the fact that we're the ones who paid this money. All right? We paid it, but we cannot receive it. And it shows you the, the just the utter hypocrisy and just the, the flagrant um, insanity. That, uh, that these folks are dealing with. They're, they're dealing almost with uh, parallel realities, as it were, with their holier-than-thou attitude on the one hand and then their uh, murder on the other hand. And so the chief priest took the piece of silver, uh, let's see, verse 7, and so they conferred together and uh, with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. They said, all right, well, here's a way we can, we can uh, get productive use out of the, these funds uh, without uh, having to keep the funds and uh, we can just simply redirect them and obtain. Uh, we've got this need uh, for a, uh, a burial place, so let's go ahead and do this. And failing to recognize that they are fulfilling Scripture in that, um, it says in verse 8, For this reason that field has been called the field of blood to this day, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And we're going to discuss this because actually it's not Jeremiah. It's, uh, we're going to see that it's found in Zechariah chapter 11. So why do they put the name of Zechariah there, in, or Jeremiah, in verse 9? Uh, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave him for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. All right, so much to come. 
We're still very early in this study, still dealing with Judas the betrayer. Before we begin today, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure, of course, you ladies already prayed, didn't you? But we'll pray again. Uh, make sure us men are in fellowship and uh, prepared to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, and it is our blessing today to assemble together. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this class. Father, as we continue to examine the uh, details related to our Savior's betrayal and the uh, miscarriage of justice, all of the, the, uh, the horrible things that are taking place here on this day, Father, we're reminded that uh, all things do work together for good, that, that uh, as he endured these things, he was uh, accomplishing our redemption, Father, and, and fulfilling your grace eternal plan. And it's just a, a marvel to behold because, Father, we too want to fulfill your plan. We too want to be obedient to the work that you assign for us to do. And if that means uh, unpleasant circumstances, if that means uh, undeserved suffering, if that means our own betrayal and mistreatment, then, uh, then so be it, Father. We want to be imitators of Christ. We want to be faithful in, in uh, every work assignment that you assign. And so we thank you for this study. Asking for your blessing upon it, open the eyes of our understanding. Show us where we not only understand the truth, but uh, open our eyes to see the application. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we did get a, a good start on this last week, and we have left off in the midst of the subpoints of main point one, Judas the betrayer. Judas the betrayer beheld the Lord's condemnation. And we're going to spotlight this today. We're going to discuss why it is that actually seeing made all the difference in the world for Judas. The, the emphasis that's placed on the uh, verb here to behold, to see. The fact that it's while he is beholding, while he is seeing. Uh, so when Judas the betrayer saw, beheld, observed that he had been condemned, all right, he should have known. He would have known had he listened to what it was that, that Jesus had spoken of or had taught. But he just couldn't allow himself to believe it. Could not allow himself to accept it. Disagreeing. No, that can't be right. That's not going to happen. Far be it from thee, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Right? And all of the, uh, all of the things there. When, Ju when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw or beheld. So Judas, the betrayer, beheld the Lord's condemnation. That's main point one. And under this, we've had five subpoints, of which I think we stopped after uh, the third one. So A is a vocabulary for betrayal as paradidomy. Subpoint A, vocabulary study of paradidomy, P-A-R-A-D-I-D-O-M-I, -I, number 3860. And really the bulk of last week was spent dealing with paradidomy, to hand over, to deliver, to betray. Uh, it's not always a negative thing. It could be a positive thing. When we're training men... When we're training men, according to 2 Timothy 2, we are handing down, we are passing on, we are entrusting to them uh, the truth of God's word. And so uh, if we're passing on traditions, like in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, or the, the faith which has been once and for all delivered to the saints, we're told in Jude verse 3, we're supposed to earnestly contend for that. Uh, Jesus said, into thy hands I paradidomy my spirit. So we, can, we entrust ourselves to God. We, we give ourselves over to God. Uh, in, in faith rest. So paradidomy itself is not a bad word. It's not a bad word. It's only bad <laughs> when uh, you are um, wrongfully turning somebody over that doesn't deserve it. 
when you're wrongfully turning somebody over that, uh, that has trusted you and you're betraying that trust by delivering them over to their adversaries, to their enemies, as is the, uh, the case here. Point B, we uh, saw Judas Iscariot. Uh, the name Judas Iscariot is so connected to this betrayal that his name can hardly be mentioned in the Gospels without being connected to this verb. Uh, almost every single time you're going to find Judas mentioned, assuming that it's this Judas, okay? And if it's the other Judas that's being mentioned, he's always mentioned as Judas, not Iscariot, okay? Judas, the other one. <coughs> um, but when it's this Judas being mentioned, almost every single time it's mentioned in connection with the verb paradidomy. The one who betrayed him. Judas, the one who betrayed him. Starting with his introduction, with, when the twelve apostles are listed in Matthew 10. You got uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You got the listing of the twelve. And uh, this catalog then concludes, yeah, Matthew 10 too. The names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And time and time and time again, uh, you have references to Judas as the betrayer. Point C, and boy, don't ever lose track of this. Despite every human and angelic agency, the reality is that Jesus gave himself over. You cannot lose sight of this. This keeps us objective. This keeps us from plunging into mental attitude sin against those that are maybe um, doing us wrong. Despite every human and angelic agency, the reality is that Jesus gave himself over. And perhaps the word despite is not correct. I said last week maybe it would be uh, above and beyond. Above and beyond every human and angelic agency. So, did, did Judas betray him? Of course. Did, uh, did the Jews uh, turn him over to, hand him over to Pilate? Yes. Did, the, did Pilate hand him over to the, uh, the, the guards? Yes. Was he handed over to be crucified? Yes. There were lots of agents involved. Uh, and every one of them is morally culpable. Every one of them is accountable for the choices they made. But it does not deny the fact that ultimately this was the plan of God. So Jesus gave himself over in agreement with the Father giving him over. In the verses for Jesus giving himself over are Galatians 2.20 and Ephesians 5, 2 and 25. The uh, verses for the Father, is uh, the, the best one there is Romans 8.32. God the Father gave him over, Romans 8.32. All right? And we can say the same thing ourselves. We can say whatever it is. Maybe, maybe somebody has done something terrible to me. And I'll just make something up, hypothetical. would never happen in ministry, but maybe uh, somebody slanders me or slanders my wife or slanders my family or whatever. And um, I could get real mad at that. I could, I could reply in, 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 in mental attitude sin. I could fight fire with fire. I could start slandering them back. Or maybe uh, I might maybe do something overt, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, one guy promised to punch me in the nose one time. Oh, all right. So how do I respond? Uh, do I punch him in the nose first? <laughs> okay. Um, what do I do? Well, rather than respond that way, what I can stop and say is say, all right, now, despite or above and beyond every human and angelic agency, this testing circumstance has either been directed or permitted by God the Father. It's either been directed or permitted by God the Father. This testing circumstance 
the the position where I am now, having been slandered, having been attacked, having been uh, whatever. The Father permitted it. The Lord permitted it. All right. And so am I going to get mad at the person doing me whatever? Or am I going to get mad at God? Because God let it happen. All right. Or do I step back and I say, okay, my struggle is not against flesh and blood anyway, according to Ephesians chapter 6. But there's rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. There are demonic forces at work. There are fallen angel forces at work. There are influences behind the thinking of the person that's doing this. Don't be distracted. Understand who the true enemy is. And rather than getting all hot and bothered and mad and trying to, to punch the lights out of whoever it is, right? See, a pastor's not supposed to be a striker anyway, according to... 1 Timothy 3. Um, so uh, what, what would that solve anyway? Because there's actually a ministry there. Here's, here's a, a brother that, that's under demonic influence. Here's a brother that's listening to these, these philosophies or listening to these, these, um, uh, these attitudes. I should be praying for him. I want him to be delivered from those attitudes. And ultimately, the Father permitted it. So this is a test I have to face. And it's a good thing that it's, uh, it's my friend that's testing me this way. Otherwise, it could be my enemy that's testing me this way. Here's a chance to, for the win-win. Here's a chance to, to do the double portion blessing. Not only can I pass my test, but I can also edify a brother in the process, if that makes any sense. All right. So never lose track of the reality. Never lose track of what the Father's doing. Never lose track. I think it's a great obje objectivity test. I think it's a wonderful objectivity test. And sometimes I, I say things to provoke people. Um, just to, to trigger their thinking, all right? And, 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 you know, a while back, somebody was being all negative about denominations, and they hated Christianity because all these denominations, and it just seems like there's just so many denominations, and, and they're always disagreeing with each other, and, and you know, the, the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans, and they, they don't really agree, and the Catholics, and it's just, uh, it's just a horrible thing. And it was kind of, they were expressing their, their uh, disgust over... Uh, over Christianity, over churchianity, I guess maybe would be a better way. But as they were expressing their disgust, as they're talking about all these things that are just ugly and they hate it, then uh, I said, yeah, and that Jesus Christ is just pathetic, isn't he, as the head of the church? He doesn't have a clue what he's doing, does he? What a, what a nightmare he is running this, uh, this church universal. He's, I, I bet you God the Father's got to be absolutely disappointed in him. Okay, now, of course, you understand, I don't, I don't believe any of that, okay? But what am I, what am I doing? What am I saying? I'm, I'm allowing my provocative comment to spark some thinking. That when you're critical of these things that you think aren't being done right, and since you're such a know-it-all, you could do a better job yourself, I'm sure. Um, but while you are bad-mouthing and criticizing and slandering and being all negative about everything, what are you really criticizing? What are you really criticizing? You know, is, is Christ or is he not in charge? Is he the head of the church? Does he know what he's doing? And he's either directing things or he's permitting things. In either event, um, you know, the, the course of, of Christianity on a global basis is far beyond any of us. <laughs> All right? Uh, I'm, I'm just one pastor with one flock in one little, one little spot in one town. Okay? But the, the, the vast... Uh, swath of Christian history, that's not my realm. Jesus Christ is achieving what he's achieving in obedience to God the Father. And uh, things like that will help us to um, put things in perspective. All right? 
And so was it, was it uh, Judas that betrayed him? Was it the Jews? Was it the Pharisees? Was it the religious leaders? Was it the Romans? Was it, it was me. It was all of us. I, I was the center, right? It was all of us. But at the end of the day, it was his father. And it was his own agreement with the father where he gave himself. And to me, that's a, that's a beautiful doctrine right there. And I can appreciate that. All right, now, the surprise here, the surprise. I believe you have to take verse 3 as a surprise. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw, he felt remorse. And so the emotion response is triggered by what he saw. And that, I don't think, is even debatable. I think that's a matter of grammar, and that's a matter of what this verse is saying here. He felt remorse, the verb metamelamai, which we'll describe in a moment. But the metamelamai activity is triggered by... Idon is triggered by what he saw, what he beheld. Now, this should not have been a surprise. Point D, the condemnation should not have been a surprise because the Lord himself connected it to his betrayal. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. In fact, many times he spoke of his coming uh, betrayal. But at least on this occasion, not only did he speak on his betrayal, he also spoke of his condemnation. I think each time he speaks of his betrayal, he adds an extra detail to it, which is kind of an interesting progression. It would probably be fruitful if we went back through some of the earlier uh, statements and start to see each of the incremental details that he adds each step of the way. Kind of, uh, you know, if you're if you're breaking bad news to somebody and you're not sure they're ready for it. <laughs> You know, and you, all right, let's try to break this in. Let's try to work you up to the point here where you can handle the full story about what you're going to hear uh, in this, okay? Because you go back to chapter 16, and Jesus is telling them about uh, how he's going to suffer many things. And let's uh, see, what is this? Matthew 16:21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So that talks about suffering, that talks about killing, but doesn't say condemnation, doesn't mention a trial, doesn't mention a legal proceeding. And they don't like it. And Peter especially steps up and says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Do you think Peter was alone in that attitude? I don't. Um, we start to see all the disciples saying the same thing when they're in the upper room and all the disciples in, uh, in denial. About these, uh, about these things. All right. And so then chapter 17, chapter 18, each time when he's anticipating what's coming up, he finally get into chapter 20 and uh, he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is Matthew 20, verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered, part enemy, to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. Same verb that we have for condemn, all right? When Judah saw that he had been condemned. And so it's been connected already. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. First use of crucify, of starao, in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Now, why is that not clear? <laughs> well, you've got to have ears to hear. You've got to have eyes to see. And even if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you still have to accept by faith the truth of what God's Word is teaching. 
It is a humility test. Every time believers, and Judas isn't even a believer, but think about the other disciples for a moment, they were struggling with it too. It's a humility test. Anytime the Word of God is taught, it's with humility that we receive the Word implanted, which is able to save the soul. If we're not responding in humility, if we're not learning in humility, if we're not receiving by faith that which God is revealing, then, then the Word's not going to profit us. It has to be united by means of faith. And so why is this a surprise? Why is it... <laughs> And we do the same thing. We learn something in Bible class, or we should. We hear something. We hear something. And maybe intellectually, we kind of sort of say, all right, well, that, that, that fits. But we don't trust it, and we don't live it. And then we go out in the conduct of our lives, and we make a decision, or we, we, we do something in violation of what we had previously been taught. Okay, why do we do that? Why do we do that? Okay, because we're not humble under the teaching, and we're not by faith accepting the teaching, and we're not by faith living the teaching. And even if I have an intellectual, a mental understanding of certain gnosis, certain facts, certain knowledge, if, I'm not, if my life is not being lived according to that, then I'm not walking by faith, am I? Until then, uh, I, I get out in carnality and I'm under my discipline and the Father's spanking me and bringing me back. And then I start to realize, wait a minute, this is true. And now I'm learning the lesson the hard way. <laughs> now, by faith, as I'm responding to my discipline and as I'm recovering from my carnality and, and so forth, now I'm starting to see it. Or, even worse, I get pushed even further away. And I think that's what we're seeing here with Judas. Okay? Now, first of all, he's not saved, so he can't, how is he going to comprehend anything in the spiritual realm anyway? But nevertheless, he was told something that he didn't believe. And then when he sees it, he still can't believe it. And when he sees it, now he's filled with regret. That, that it's his fault. That, that if he hadn't cut that bargain, if he hadn't led them to the garden, this wouldn't be happening. Okay? Now it's his fault, and there's not a thing you can do about it. As I think we've all noticed uh, in, in our human experience, we are um, monodirectional in the temporal uh, dimension, right? We're proceeding forward through time, monodirectional. You can't turn it back. You can't rewind like a, like a VCR or DVD. You can't go back to a previous chapter and redo something again, make a different choice. <laughs> okay. You can you can learn from past mistakes and make better choices moving forward, but you cannot go back and undo something that's been done or unsay something that's been said. All right, so it should not have been a surprise. And it's it's remarkable. I'm I'm thankful that our God is so gracious that even when we are going through our I told you so moments <laughs> Okay, that the I told you so, the Holy Spirit that speaks to our heart, okay, is 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 so gentle <laughs> and so gracious uh, that that we're, we see played out in in testing and in life experiences and in, in discipline, we see the doctrine that we had previously been taught, and and sure enough, because that's just the way it works. That's the way that that the the scriptures come alive. 
letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you is a, uh, is a powerful thing. Finally then, the emphasis on beholding. Point E. The emphasis on beholding is highly significant. Both here and elsewhere. The negation is also significant. And I'll show you what I mean. Why it's so emphatic in this verse. And why it's so emphatic in other verses. Why it appears to be the trigger for certain decisions. The emphasis on beholding is highly significant. Here and elsewhere. The negation is also significant. That is, the things that you don't see. You're actually blessed by not seeing and still believing. Okay? Or by not seeing and loving, as we have it in 1 Peter 1.8. So we have beholding and we have not beholding. And when Scripture lays this out, I think it's... it's uh, particularly in such an emphatic way, I think it's worth our, worth our focus. I think it's part of what uh, the, the devil is concerned about. I think this is a prime objective of his. His, his, his blinding activity is what? Why, why does he blind the minds of the unbelieving? So they might, might not behold the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ. Beholding or not beholding is, is um, a huge part of the devil's tactics as part of his strategy. And if he can selectively keep some things from being beheld, and if he can force other things to be beheld, then people get all off on sidetracks. They get all off on rabbit trails. They're beholding the wrong thing. And everything that's beheld is what? It's an idol. Okay? It's an image. Okay? I think it's a significant element. This is why we're learning to control our thoughts. This is why we're taking those thoughts captive. It's why uh, those lofty things that are raised up against the, the knowledge of God, they have to be cast down. This is the main tactic of the adversary. We don't want to be distracted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. When something else takes center stage, and that's what we're beholding, hmm, something else. I think before we know it, we are... Uh, Beholden. We're beholden to what we're beholding. How about that? All right, John chapter 20, 1 Peter chapter 1. A couple of, I think just two instances should um, establish this as a concept, and then perhaps uh, upcoming studies will let us flesh this out a little bit more, particularly as we deal with the thorn in the flesh and the angelology and some of the things we're dealing with in 2 Corinthians. John chapter 20 and verse 29. And even, uh, like I said, I just gave you two samples, but I think we could expand upon it. I do like verse 29, but let me, well, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Remember, doubting Thomas wasn't there for the first meal, and then he, he's there the second time around. And he didn't believe them the first time. And then eight days later, they're back inside, and this time Thomas is with them. And so he invites Thomas to reach here with your fingers, see my hands. And he's using the very words Thomas used, which is glorious. So Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God. Then verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Did, did your uh, 
perception, was your perception a requirement to your faith? Was my word not, not sufficient? Was my promise not sufficient? You needed my promise plus the, uh, the, the visible uh, observation of that promise's fulfillment? Is that what you required? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. In other words, those for whom the promise itself was all they needed. The trustworthiness of the one promising. That's why we believe. We believe because we, we pistuo because he's pistos. He's faithful. That's exactly why I can apply my pistis because he's pistos. If he wasn't faithful, I'd have no reason to believe anything that he says. But because he's eternally faithful, I can believe everything that he says. Same chapter, though, if you back up a little bit, this, uh, this scene um, I enjoy uh, as uh, Mary Magdalene comes on, on, in verse 1 and then she runs and comes to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. There's, she's coming to Peter and to John here and says to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. Okay? So youth has its advantages, right? Peter was the older man. John was the youngest of the disciples. <laughs> and so forth. I think I'm starting to relate more to Peter these days. And um, go hiking all over Kiev with my 20-year-old son, and I'm reminded that I'm not 20 years old anymore. Anyway. And stooping, and so he ran ahead faster than Peter, came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, so he comes to the door, and but doesn't go in. He stops, and he's stooping, and he's looking in. Uh, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. He saw, notice, the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered into the tomb. Here's Peter's, uh, he might be the last one to get there, but he's going to barge right on in and put himself in the middle of everything. Okay. Barge right on in, entered the tomb, and he saw, there it is again, saw the linen wrappings there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Why is that different? So the other disciple, who had, come, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered. And he saw and believed. He saw and believed. So again, we're dealing with the perception and the uh, faith acceptance. Verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Alright, so we have aspects, things that we have to see. Should we have to see them? Could we not understand them and accept them by faith even without seeing them? Isn't it more blessed to do that, as Jesus said? Okay. Uh, notice also for the ongoing church age, we've got 1 Peter 1.8. 1 Peter 1.8. Recognition of our present priesthood in the church age. It says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We rejoice, meaning we express our joy 
And we express our joy with inexpressible joy. <laughs> this is awesome. Okay? This is like uh, what will Paul encounter when he was caught up to the third heaven. Things that were inexpressible. Things which man is not permitted to speak. He heard inexpressible words. And we, likewise, we express our joy. We rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. But the point being is that we, the church age, is designed to be an age without the personal presence of Jesus Christ bodily on this earth because we have the personal presence of Jesus Christ spiritually within each one of us. We are mystically united to the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. That's how this age is designed. And we live in this world, but we're not of this world. Our focus is not of this world. Our focus is of the things above. The idea that, uh, that we need to have a, a visible person or that we need to have a temple or we need to have a holy place to pilgrimage to or we need to have all these things that these other religions have, we don't need any of those. And that's glorious. I think it's, it's, a, it's a powerful thing that sets biblical Christianity apart from every false uh, religion that's ever come down the pike. Different elements there. So on what is beheld, what is not beheld, what is believed and why is it believed? These, these are, I think, fundamental issues. Uh, we, we need to come to grips with them ourselves. We need to understand why we believe what we believe. Um, I think it's, it's important in an apologetic sense when uh, the, the skeptics are asking, you know, do you think the Bible's reliable? Why, why do you trust what the Bible says? Yes, I think the Bible's reliable, and here's why. All right? And we tell them, because they're going to have this idea that we're just blind faith, right? We're just believing in nothing. That we, we're just trusting in something that we can't prove. Trusting in something that we can't see. Now, I agree we can't see it. And I agree, if you want an absolute proof, uh, you know, in a test tube, you're not going to get that. But I do believe the evidence is significant. And I do believe the faith is grounded Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In any event. Moving on to point two. Judas felt remorse. Judas felt remorse and returned his reward. All right, so it's all better now. He said he was sorry. <laughs> nope. All right. Judas felt remorse and returned his reward. Understand, this is not repentance. Understand, he's not saved. Not before this episode, not because of this episode, not after this episode. Judas Iscariot is in hell today as an unbeliever. And uh, the tears don't count. We'll see that. In fact, that's a sub-point. Sub-point D. Tears don't count. Um, the emotions are irrelevant I'm not saying they're bad. <laughs> not saying they're good. A lot of folks experience a lot of emotions. A lot of folks don't experience a lot of emotions. But that's, that's a separate issue from the reality of our salvation. It's a separate issue from the reality of our repentance, of our restoration to fellowship. Different components there. We do ourselves no favors if we, if we blend these concepts or we confuse them. Okay? 
So when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. I like that translation. He felt remorse. Or he regretted his actions. He regretted his actions. He felt remorse. That's probably the best. Felt. Because that makes us think of feelings. Okay? And uh, returned the 30 pieces of silver. So does that make it all better? Did that solve the problem? No. It didn't change the reality that the Savior is still betrayed. It's not stopping what's going to happen in the consequence of his betrayal. It really doesn't achieve anything. Other than maybe he felt better. Right? Maybe he felt that, well, okay, it'll, it'll go to the temple. It'll go to a good cause. It'll go to, uh, you know, maybe this will somehow make up for something. What's he really going to achieve by returning 30 pieces of silver? Nothing. Okay. Understand this is not repentance. Subpoint A. We do not have the verb metanoia. We do not have the noun metanoia in this passage or anywhere nearby. Subpoint A. Judas did not repent. The verb here sparked by the beholding is not repentance. The verb here sparked by the beholding is regret. If it was true repentance, we would have the verb metanoeo. M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O. Metanoeo. Number 3340. Or the noun metanoia. Metanoia. Metanoia is like paranoia, only better. <laughs> All right. The same noia. The noose is your thinking. The noose is your mind. Okay. So noeo is a thinking term. Meta, to change. Repentance is a change of thinking. It's not an emotion. It's different from metamelamai to regret. All right. It is a change of thinking. You had one way of thinking and now you have a different way of thinking. You have changed your thinking. You have changed your mind. You have repented. Hopefully we can understand the biblical definition and not uh, not be snared by... It's really a loaded term in a lot of, uh, a lot of theology and a lot of churches and how they approach it. And approaching repentance as, you know, tears. Emotions, feeling sorry, vowing to never do it again, um, dedicating yourself to, to making it up to God or, or uh, um, you know, making yourself a better person. Any, any, any of that ridiculous stuff. It's not. It's the change of thinking, and what we're going to find as we do a more comprehensive study on it, it's the change of thinking that He brings about as the Holy Spirit convicts, as the Holy Spirit transforms our thinking. Uh, our thinking has changed because it's being molded in the conformity with Christ, with His thinking. And uh, that's, a good, that's a good change. Excuse me. All right. Metanoia, 3340, has 34 uses in the New Testament. Metanoia is the very next strongest number, 3341, that has 22 uses in the New Testament. So altogether, you've got 56 different places to look at. Um, and we can pull them all up. I think just for this morning, though, limiting it to Matthew would be, would be uh, adequate. In some cases, you get, you, get a, you get an adequate sense of the terms without uh, needing to look at every single instance of it, as long as it's representative and it's a fair sample. Particularly, you keep it with the same author in the same book, and you have the nearest context for uh, 
comparative usages. Remember, repentance was a, uh, a huge feature of John the Baptist and his uh, ministry to Israel in preparing them for the coming of the king. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the verb, the imperative, was uh, a, a large feature of the preparation for the kingdom message as delivered to Israel. Not only John the Baptist used it, but Jesus used it. Jesus' disciples used it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and repentance was a requirement. Change your thinking. You've got to have a new way of thinking because there's going to be a new way of living once the king is on his throne. Understand that Israel has been with a vacated throne since the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And that throne of David has been left vacated ever since. And even when they returned to the land, the throne of David was never occupied. To this day, it's not occupied. And so for the Jewish people to enter into the kingdom is going to require a change to their thinking. And that preaching uh, was uh, a huge feature of John the Baptist's ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it says in Matthew 3, 2. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What's the herald supposed to do? What's the forerunner supposed to do? He's getting the people prepped for the arrival of the king. Then, uh, interesting, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is Matthew 3, 7, coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? His message actually wasn't for them. You know, the uh, preparation for the king is only for believers. Unbelievers aren't going to enter into the millennial kingdom. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're claiming to be ready for the kingdom, then... There you go. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. They don't think that your racial background is going to save you. Verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. That baptism was different than the baptism you experienced because the baptism of John was not church-age baptism, water baptism. Our baptism is to identify with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ as members of his body, as members of his bride. We publicly testify to this world that we are, the, that we are united, baptized in a union with Christ. United with him in the likeness of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection, we now have, uh, 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 we've been raised up with Christ. That's what we testify to in our baptism. That's not what John the Baptist was dealing with as he uh, was preparing the uh, Jewish believers there for the coming of their king. His was a baptism with water for repentance. All right. That's Matthew 3. Matthew 4.17. Another use of it. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you'll notice it's not just John the Baptist's ministry. Jesus himself had the same message early. Early. Now he stops this message uh, when he reaches that, that tipping point. Reaches that point where he stops preaching the kingdom, and he starts preaching the cross, preparing his disciples for that. But this is still early, and uh, he's still preaching that message of repentance. Matthew 11, verses 20 and 21. 
He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. They did not repent, and so they were rebuked because they did not repent. Chapter 12 and verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation of the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now you notice in all of these applications, Israel is the focus. Israel is the focus. And it's not surprising in the early chapters of Acts where we have the word repent, like Acts 2, for example. Don't be confused. Don't try to turn that into a church-age gospel message, all right? Because there, too, the audience is Jewish. The audience is those the Jews that had arrived for Pentecost in Jerusalem. They also need a change of thinking in order to uh, cross over from an age of Israel stewardship to a church-age stewardship. All right, so there's our verses. And uh, some of those were the verbs, some of those were the noun. But in uh, every case, what we just looked at encompassed uh, a change of thinking. Uh, none of those features anything in terms of, a, of a, uh, an emotional response. Nothing in, that we read in any of those verses demands any kind of a boo-hooing, uh, crying, tears, feeling bad, making it up, doing something. Changing thinking. Changing thinking that has corresponding outworking, not, uh, not uh, deeds that are done as a, uh, as a uh, recompense or deeds that are assigned as a, um, what do they call that when the priest tells you that you, now you have to, not only do you have to say your Hail Marys, but now you have to do your penance, all right? <laughs> oh my goodness, there's no penance in repentance. Now, the term that we do have here is the term for regret. The term that we do have here is an emotional term, metamelami, metamelami. This is the vocabulary that we do have in Matthew 27. It's actually featured earlier than that in Matthew 21. comes back again. Paul makes use of it in 2 Corinthians 7. It's featured in Hebrews 7.21. The subpoint B then, regret, is metamelami. M-E-T-A, the same meta-prefix, melamai, M-E-L-O-M-A-I. 3308 is the Strong's number. It only has six New Testament uses, so it's not going to take nearly the time that repentance takes to work your way through. To regret, to be sorry, to be very sorry. It speaks of the uh, the emotional um, consequences for something that you've done. I think we all can relate to that. We've done things that have carried emotional consequences. Okay, God has done things that have carried emotional consequences. That bothers some people. I'm okay with it. But um, the fact that God has uh, emotional consequences to what he's done doesn't mean that he did something wrong or that he didn't know about it ahead of time. All right. He knew about it ahead of time, but he still didn't like it. <laughs> I think that's fair. So you have metamelami. There's a cognate form, too, that I think is interesting with two uses uh, that negates this. Ah, metamelatos. Ah, you put the alpha in front of it and you negate it. A-M-E-T-A, 
M-E-L-E-T-O-S. And it means without regret. It means um, guiltless or without regret. And uh, we taught it, actually, when we taught Second Corinthians chapter 7, the repentance without regret. It combines both repent and regret. That the repentance we're supposed to have is supposed to be ah, metamelatos. That if all we have is the metamelomai without repentance, that's, that has no value. You can have regrets all day long. If you don't change your thinking, there's no value. There's no repentance. And so let's look at these. Start with Matthew 21. The regret, the sorrow. The emotional, uh, the inward emotional state that is then generated. He's giving a parable here of these two sons. And he says, but what do you think? I'm reading from Matthew chapter 21 and verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it. Afterward, he regretted it. He was sorry. He had an emotional response. Inwardly, he had an emotional effect to the the words that he had had for his father. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not. So the first one makes a good show of it. I'm sorry, the first one says he won't. And then because he regrets it, he does. The second one says, oh yeah, I'll do that. And then blows it off. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, well, the first. And he said, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward. You did not even feel remorse afterward. So forget repentance. Not only did they not repent, they didn't even regret. They didn't even take the lesser step. They didn't even have the emotional response afterward so as to believe him. There's our use of it there. Matthew 27.3 is our passage today. Um, Let's look at Hebrews and then we'll go to 2 Corinthians. Hebrews 7.21 And this is a quote out of uh, Psalms, where the Septuagint also uses metamelami. Um, talking about uh, the Lord being a priest here after the order of Melchizedek, and why the law made nothing perfect, and then bringing in a better hope, bringing in a better hope through which we draw near to God, Inasmuch as it was not without an oath, we're told, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not, unfortunately, change his mind. Not a good translation. It's not metanoeo. Metanoeo would be change his mind. It's metamelami. The Lord has sworn and will not regret it. 
the Lord has sworn and will not regret it. You are a priest forever. So much more so also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Of a better covenant. Alright, then back to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 and verse 10. We have both terms, and they're used in connection with each other in a way that I think lays them out well. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 and verse 10. Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, either the first, the, uh, first Corinthians, or I think better the, the correspondence in between first and second Corinthians, the sorrowful letter that he wrote. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. Talking about his own inner response, his own emotions that were a consequence of his activities. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. At the time, he did. At the time he sent that letter, he regretted it. He had an emotional response to his action. He sent a letter and he didn't like it, having sent it. But now he no longer does. I, I do not regret it now. For I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. And what does that sorrow do? Was that the point? The point was to make him sorrowful? <laughs> the point was to write him a letter to make him feel real bad? No. Is that what the Word of God is supposed to do? Is that what preachers are supposed to do? They cut you down, make you feel bad, you hang your head, and, oh, I'm such a terrible person, I'm sorry, God. I'll be better. I'll work harder. Okay? <laughs> now, that, there are churches that do that, all right? But we're not, we're not that approach. All right? I rejoice now, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Sorrowful to the point of repentance. And this is why I tell you that the emotions in themselves aren't good, aren't bad. You may have them, you may not have them, you may have more than the next guy, you may have less than the next guy. But they can be uh, useful. They can be productive. The Father can make use of it. So I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. <laughs> there we go. There is a legitimate place for emotion as he directs it. All right. As it achieves its purpose. Why is the Father directing you into this sorrow? Why are you miserable? And are you miserable enough? And it says, uh, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. The Father is actually using this as a part of the, the divine discipline. The Father is using this as a part of your wake-up call. And you ought to be able to respond to it. Now, the, the, the value won't be in being sorry. The, there's no value in being sorry. But if you identify the sorrow for what it is, according to the will of God, you identify it as the discipline that it is, and then it sparks your wake-up call whereby you change your thinking. You see, this is what the passage is dealing with. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces, it's productive, it's, it's effectual, it works, produces a repentance without regret. It produces a repentance without regret. 
And this is your metanoia, ah, metameletos, your change of thinking without regret, without sorrow. The sorrow sparked it so that now you can have the repentance without it, the repentance without the sorrow. The repentance without, in fact, it's, it serves to bring that sorrow to, to an end. Okay? I won't let myself use the word closure. But it, it allows the, the, uh, the cessation of that sorrow. And you can put it behind you and say, thank you, Father. Thank you for that discipline. Thank you for that. Now you can restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now you can create within me this clean heart, this willing heart. You can sustain me, Father. And you can reflect everything that David reflected there in Psalm 51. All right. So what I'm trying to say is that metamelami is the emotion. Metanoeo is the, is the repentance. And one can be present to lead to the other, but it doesn't have to be present to lead to the other. And if all you have is the regret that doesn't lead to the repentance, then it doesn't have the value of the repentance. Uh, and, and I think we do ourselves a, a disservice if we confuse the issues. Because we can see people who are just bawling like babies, right? Crying like everything and they're so sorry and they feel terrible and they're so embarrassed and they're so um, everything, and, and they're 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 uh, humble, or we think they're humble, or they're they're at least they're very recalcitrant. And I'm so sorry, and I'll make it up to you, and all this stuff. All right, don't be fooled. Okay, I mean, accept it for what it is. Be thankful for what it is, but don't fall for the thought that that actually is the same as repentance, because you can have a ton of regret without repentance. Okay. Repentance without regret is featured in 2 Corinthians. Repentance without regret is featured in 2 Corinthians. And it may very well be that um, the, the, the true repentance that is a response to doctrine that has no emotions at all may be the most valuable. And people mock that. They say, well, you should at least show a little shame. You should at least be a little sorry for what you've done. And, and, and so people come up with this emotional test as a litmus test. Well, until I see you have some kind of regret, then I'm not going to believe that it's real repentance. Well, all right. <laughs> but... I'm going to believe it's real repentance when there's fruit that's born in keeping with repentance. When I see the when I see the production that follows. When I see not just the words that are spoken today or the the the, the water droplets that come from the tear ducts today. I'm going to I'm going to see what happens next week, the week after, the week after, the week after, over the next 20 years. I want to see I want to see the production. And I'm not the judge of the repentance anyway, am I? Doesn't he answer to the Lord like I answer to the Lord? Okay. Man, uh, we had a, a missionary here on Sunday. And I, you know, if some people are going to be critical. Say, no, if you're divorced, you're banned for the rest of your life. God will never use you ever again. And they have some kind of a 
husband and one wife verse or something they think is applicable in that. And they, and they say, no, you'll never be a pastor ever again. You'll never be a missionary ever again. You'll never do anything ever again. You're a loser. <laughs> okay, maybe not quite so blatant about it in those words, but that's their attitude. And somebody else can come along and say, man, I see uh, the Lord's opened a door for you here. Why did the Lord do that? He must feel like you're useful at this point. That you've grown in the meantime. That you've learned some lessons. You've recovered from some discipline. You've, you, you're restored to fellowship. You're, you're useful for service. Wow. The Lord opens doors no man can shut. So Mr. Grumbly Fuss Budget needs to, uh, <laughs> needs to uh, recognize, hey, let's celebrate what the Lord's doing here, shall we? Sorrow, according to the will of God, produces this, as well as a package of additional attitudes for divine good production. Look what else gets produced here. Not only is is repentance produced, but now notice, it produces a repentance without regret. And it goes on, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. You know, that, that woman that was wiping his feet with her hair and her tears. Think about her dedication to service because she knew she had been forgiven so much. Think about, and my childhood pastor was, was like this. My childhood pastor was removed from ministry for adultery. And after a period of time was restored to ministry. Restored to his marriage, actually. They, the, the divorce never happened. They reconciled. Before the divorce took place, they had, I think, eight more years of marriage together after that before she went to heaven. He had a second ministry, much smaller, much more humble, but I think uh, powerful. Why? Because he knew experientially what he had thrown away. And he knew what the, the God of grace had restored to him. And the, the zeal, the earnestness, the longing, the, the uh, avenging, the, the, the earnestness, the attitude there in verse 11 was exhibited in him and his wife, both. Now they're both in heaven and look forward to seeing them someday. All right. Well, um, we'll have to come back to this. Uh, th- I'll give you something to think about because I'm two minutes long already. Tears don't count. If they counted, then... Uh, then uh, Esau and his tears would have counted, but he found no place for repentance in Hebrews 12:17. And then guilt motivates doing something. Guilt motivates doing something. I think Judas returning this money was like Adam and Eve sowing the fig leaves. Uh, what happens when humans are um, overwhelmed by their guilt? Well, they feel compelled to do something. <laughs> okay? Why was Judas compelled to give back that money? Why were Adam and Eve uh, bothered about being naked? They were, I mean, yeah, they were naked, but it was just a bunch of animals around. Why were they compelled to sow the fig leaves? Guilt motivates doing something. So, D and E. I know that's way too fast, but we'll uh, we'll come back to this next week, and then we'll uh, we'll see the actual hanging. From the uh, from the tree, okay. You know Judas hung from a tree before Christ did. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, Father, I pray that we would learn these lessons and, and uh, none of us, Father, would be just consumed with guilt on the improper basis. Uh, but, Father, respond on the godly basis to the sorrow that produces repentance and uh, to a, a sorrow that's not the same as regret. It's a sorrow without regret. The sorrow that produces repentance. And Father, I just thank you for the attitudes of sorrow. You yourself have sorrow. Your son had sorrow. Um, but sorrow according to the will of God. I pray that we would learn these lessons, Father, and make the appropriate application. And help us to have the balance, Father. Um, I, I've known folks that have gone so far to the intellectual extreme that any kind of emotional expression is, is out of bounds. Uh, Father, we don't, we don't want to go to that extent. Uh, neither do we want to go so far into the emotional pendulum the other direction where we're just slaves to how we feel, Father. That's ridiculous also. Um, we know that we have our mentality. We know that we have our intellect. And we know that we have our emotions. We know that we have our conscience. Every facet of the human soul, Father, I pray that we would have the proper balance. And I pray that uh, that it would be the mentality in the driver's seat, not the uh, not the emotions in the driver's seat of our soul. And I thank you, Father. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.